we're continuing uh, now with our third, uh, third panel. Uh, we have a different uh, time enforcer, an even more stringent time enforcer, perhaps. Uh, so uh, th uh, this panel is on Sudan, the humanitarian uh, crisis of resource distribution. Uh, we're very lucky to have four uh, panelists, Sahara Ali, uh, Noel uh, Arenas, uh, Alistair um, Azure, and uh, Manal Omar. And we're going to go uh, start with uh, Sahar. Uh, thank you very much. Um, and good afternoon, everybody. <laughs> and uh, before I start, actually, I would like to thank again uh, Diane for uh, giving me the opportunity to be part of this group. Actually, it was based on a recommendation from uh, my colleague Tara and, and Carlos, and thank you for both of them. And uh, also thank you for uh, uh, all of the speakers uh, during these two days. I think it's been very uh, rich uh, discussion. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm really uh, thrilled and, and, and honored to be uh, part of, of, of this uh, discussion. Thank you very much again. So I think um, um, I, I will try uh, to highlight a little bit on the situation of uh, Sudan uh, with a particular focus on the uh, resource distribution which has been actually seen as one of the underlying causes uh, of the conflict uh, that have been uh, in, in, in the country for a long time. And, and within this uh, struggle, uh, actually, I would also try to reflect a little bit on the, on the role of the religion uh, and what kind of the, 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 the role that the religion and the religion actors had uh, play, played within uh, this uh, context. Um, uh, interesting that it, uh, when I was uh, um, hearing to the other panel about Syria, I can see also some of the similarities where the religion have been uh, used uh, to, for, to achieve certain agenda for a uh, certain group and, and, and actually mainly for uh, 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 ruling party uh, to keep uh, status quo and remain in power for a long time. So I think that is a similar situation that happened uh, in Sudan. Uh, I think um, maybe everybody in this room, when we talk about Sudan, you remember two things, South Sudan and Darfur. And I think uh, um, maybe because the two of them were, were in the media, and everybody had heard about what happened in Darfur and the atrocities and the genocide. Um, the same for the conflict that had um, continued for more than 20 years in, in South Sudan that led uh, to the separation uh, of the country to two countries. Um, so I think, but however, I, I wanted also to mention the same uh, causes that had contributed to the conflict in Darfur and in South Sudan, it is the same uh, causes that actually causing instability in other parts of the country. Um, actually, we, 
uh, in Sudan we have um, a conflict that is not only happening in Darfur, but in, in other parts of the country, in, in east part of Sudan, in central part of, of Sudan. So, so I just wanted to, to mention this is, is the same uh, cause, because sometimes the presentation of the, of the problem uh, kind of just try to uh, reflect it certain part. So, uh, so uh, looking at, at our situation in Sudan, actually, um, Sudan has always been seen as very uh, a complex country in terms of uh, uh, politically, socially, uh, geographically. It is ever diverse with over uh, hundreds of different ethnic uh, tribes uh, or group, dozen of language and, and religion also. Uh, there is a diversity. It is estimated that 70% of the Sudanese population are Sunni Muslim, uh, while about 11% are practitioner of indigenous tribal uh, religions, and 19% are Christian. As a result of this uh, complexity and the diversity, actually, developing common national identity became a constant and major challenge for the country. Um, so I would like here just also to uh, highlight on the, on, 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 on the different issues at, and how religious actually had embedded at different level. Um, like first, for example, the issue of the, of the national identity. Um, the, so the, for for long time, and in particular for the north part of Sudan, um, the presentation of 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 the country as as a Muslim Arab country actually had contributed to the aggravation of the situation between between the Muslim uh, Arab, between the Muslim non-Arab and non-Muslim. Um, the, the successive ruling party uh, that uh, uh, came in power uh, in, 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 uh, since the independence of Sudan from the British uh, colonization in 1956, um, actually uh, all of them, they are from the northern part, Arab Muslim. Uh, so this where the concern of other groups started to come, that they are uh, marginalized, uh, uh, the, they they are not represented uh, in the, in the power sharing. Uh, also, at the same time, it's, uh, in the distribution of the national wealth. Uh, so uh, I can just give one example that since the independence, uh, all of the uh, ruling uh, leaders, uh, they as I mentioned, they were all from Arab Muslim north part of Sudan, except for one uh, president, uh, Ibrahim Abboud, who was from uh, Bija tribe, uh, which are not considered to be uh, Arab tribe from Eastern uh, Sudan. Uh, apart from that, actually, uh, the rest of the compositions of the, of the country, they were uh, deprived from access to, to power and, or sharing of power. And, and uh, also, actually, um, 
the imbalance of resources distribution that happened during a different uh, period uh, that had deprived certain part of Sudan uh, from, uh, um, from development, from infrastructure that also had contributed to this uh, uh, civil war. So, so just to summarize here, I think uh, uh, due to the fact that uh, the majority of the, of the northern part of Sudan are, uh, are Muslim, which they identify themselves as Arab Muslim. Um, actually, uh, even looking back at the origin of, uh, of those people who are identify themselves now as Arab Muslim, actually they are the ancient uh, Nubian uh, that they were living in the northern part of Sudan during uh, the uh, Christian uh, kingdom, kingdom during that time. They have their own uh, slave uh, riding during the uh, 15th and 14th centuries and they converted to Islam and they identify themselves now as Arab Muslim instead of African Muslim. So at that time, actually, because the Islam is a new, new religion coming to, to that area, uh, it started to develop, those people, they started to do, develop a feeling of superiority against other uh, tribes. And, 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 and this actually um, has got nothing to do with Islam, but it is, um, I mean, what, what Islam is, is teaching, it is a kind of, of, of culture that people, uh, started to reintegrate themselves in uh, a new, uh, uh, new culture. So that is why actually the, the conflict uh, in Sudan um, most of the time is being uh, like uh, largely seen oh. as, a, <laughs> as a conflict of uh, dynamic uh, discrimination and racism based on inter-independent uh, ideological Arabization and Islamization of Sudan. Uh, uh, this actually, this ideology is, they, they is not only discriminating uh, against uh, Arab Muslim, against uh, non-Muslim, but even within uh, the, the, the Muslim, there is a discrimination between Arab uh, Muslim and, and Arab non-Muslim. Uh, so uh, I, think, I think that is uh, a big, um, I think, uh, point that is, is important to be uh, reflected. Um, <clears throat> there is also another factor that some people see had contributed to the civil war, in particular for South Sudan, which is during the colonization time, uh, that uh, the British had, um, uh, they had uh, uh, closed South Sudan. And at that time, they put new uh, uh, law of uh, closed district uh, ordinances, uh, ordinances that was in 1922 and they have prevented uh, Muslim Arab from entering Sudan unless you get uh, like visa or permit to enter. So uh, there are some analysis they think that uh, the, uh, during the colonial time was the motive was is to stop uh, uh, the, the movement of, of Arab Muslim culture going deep into Africa, rest of, of Africa. 
and also at the same time the, the growing uh, Orthodox Christianity in, in northern part of Sudan from moving towards uh, deeply in, in the uh, going south Sudan and the rest of uh, African countries. And uh, so that then, while the British actually, they had justified that actually South Sudan was closed uh, because uh, they have, they wanted to eradicate the, the, the slave trade that was actually kind of very flourishing at, at, at that time. So, however, uh, it was, uh, I mean, it cannot be neglected. Uh, this policy of closing uh, of South Sudan had really contributed to deprivation of that region from any kind of development since the independence. Uh, so regardless of what is the motive at that time of the, of the colonization. I wanted also to highlight an uh, important thing that how, um, how is the, the, the colonial, they also, uh, um, they depended on the, the religious uh, actors, you know, in their ruling uh, time. And this mainly on the two, two sectarian party in, in Sudan at that time, which is the Ummah and their sectarian uh, Ansar, Al-Mahdi, and, and uh, uh, Democratic Union's party and their sectarian Al-Khatmiya. Uh, so this policy of uh, the British uh, colonial uh, that they give more power to those uh, leaders uh, uh, actually had contributed again that uh, for increasing power and imbalance of, of the resource distribution. Uh, we have a very good example of uh, Ansar al-Mahdi, and I think most of you have heard about uh, al-Mahdi, that they, till now they, ha they are controlling uh, or they are owning big um, uh, land in, 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 in the Jazeera Aba. And, and this land is being cultivated actually by the people that they were brought from Darfur during Al-Mahadiya time. Until now, those people are there. They are cultivating the land, but they don't have the ownership of the land. And still it belongs to uh, Al-Mahadi and, and his, uh, I mean, the family. So the same with, the, with other group of Al-Khatmi. Uh, so I think I run out of time yes. and maybe I will, uh, leave it here and then maybe my colleague will highlight a little bit on the humanitarian uh, interventions. And Thank you very much, um, Sahar, and uh, Nahuel Arenas is uh, speaking next. Hello. Yes. So, um, after more than 10 years of uh, uninterrupted um, operational humanitarian work, I decided to take um, a three-month paternity leave starting on January 1st. And on January 5th, uh, Sahar wrote me an email uh, saying that the, the number of South Sudanese entering uh, Sudan, the refugees, South Sudanese refugees entering uh, Sudan, uh, East Darfur, uh, has grown so much that it warranted an urgent humanitarian response. She only writes to me when she needs money. <laughs> of course, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, the separation of, of South Sudan did not bring stability. There's continued displacement, uh, alarming levels of, uh, of uh, food insecurity. 
and so on and so on. So Sudan and South Sudan are some of the countries that contribute today to a record in, in levels of displacement uh, around the world. Uh, of course, Syria is perhaps the largest crisis generating the largest numbers of, of displaced people, but also Yemen, Iraq, uh, Central African Republic, um, uh, Burundi, uh, more than 65 million people uh, displaced today. Most of them internally displaced, so within the frontiers, the, the borders of a country, but more than 20 million seeking refuge uh, uh, in other countries. Um, as this case of, of the Southern Sudanese uh, coming to East Darfur. So the fact is that the, the world is on fire. Alistair said um, uh, yesterday, this is a green time. And look, look what happened today. Um, and you know, the number of, of people uh, targeted by humanitarian assistance has doubled in the last 10 years. There's, we estimate more than 125 million people in need of humanitarian assistance today. This year, 2017, uh, is the record of global funding requirements uh, of interagency humanitarian appeals. More than $22 billion uh, with already a shortfall uh, calculated in close to 45%. And that's not to cover the 125, it's to cover 98. So there's already a gap there. Um, actually, last, last year, the uh, World Food uh, uh, Program uh, had to cut food rations in the refugee camps in Jordan because they just didn't have the money. Uh, but there's more. Protracted crises are the new norm. Today's conflict burned on for an average time of 37 years. Less than 1% of refugees last year were able to return to their homes. The average time that refugees live in camps is 17 years. So it is a fiction if we think that uh, humanitarian action addresses temporary problems. Um, and 43 of the world's extreme poor are now found in fragile countries that are either in the midst of internal conflict or are living near and feeling the effects of nearby uh, conflicts. And I haven't yet mentioned climate-related events, number of, uh, of severity of, of natural hazards increasing. By 2030, we estimate at least 325 million people uh, in extreme poverty will live in the areas most exposed to natural hazards. And I wanted to take a leave. That's impossible. So, um, you know, the traditional separation between what falls within humanitarian, the realm of humanitarian uh, action and what's developing uh, development programming and policy is blurred. Actually, humanitarian crises are a failure of development. And in the case of Darfur uh, uh, and South Sudan, as, as uh, um, Sahar alluded to, uh, labeling this crisis as one between Arabs and, and African, uh, black Africans, or between Muslims and Christians is misleading. Uh, perhaps it is difficult for us, uh, you know, we tend to think, it's, it's more comforting to think in binary terms, zeros and ones, good and bad guys, uh, than uh, embrace complexity. And the, uh, the story behind uh, the conflict in Sudan, it's, 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 it's one of complexity, and, and uh, Sahar made that point a complex history of uh, social inequality, environmental crisis, competition over natural resources, uh, conflicted notions of identity, as she mentioned, uh, but also in, in Darfur, uh, issues around land owner ownerships, uh, change, changes in patterns of land use, uh, also changes in the way that, uh, that conflict resolution happens. Um, and on top of this, there are changes in weather patterns. So people don't know where, when to farm, when to you know, harvest. Uh, that increases tensions between pastoralists and, and agricultural farmers. Uh, as Sahar mentioned, uh, 
Sudan in the post-colonial era was dominated by uh, Arab-speaking elites uh, from the central and northern part of the countries. That concentrated economic development in their home regions, uh, uh, trying to forge this national uh, identity around uh, Arabism and, um, and Islam. Uh, when there is an, an effort and a tendency towards domination, there is the reaction of, of, uh, uh, of resistance, and there was a, a, a huge resistance from the south, but everywhere in Sudan. Interestingly, the uh, Sudan People's Liberation Movement and its uh, uh, armed uh, wing, the SPLA, at the beginning they showed themselves as uh, representing uh, all marginalized groups uh, in, uh, in the country uh, with the slogan of the New Sudan. Uh, they wanted, at least publicly, or some of them, uh, secular, a plural, unified Sudan in which there would be no distinction on the basis of religion, ethnicity, language, gender, and uh, region. So, of course, this was threatening to the uh, Arabic-speaking northern Sudanese elites. And yesterday we were discussing one of the key questions is how, how, we, imagine, uh, how we manage pluralism. So, Sudan, as, as, uh, as Sahar mentioned, is a case where you know, underlying economic, social, cultural, and pol political neglect ends being presented or manipulated or uh, giving ground to religious uh, confrontation as many other places, uh, we can think of Mali, Central African Republic, Northern Nigeria. Today they made the point, uh, Fadi and Anwar, about uh, the Syrian crisis. So in this world of overwhelming need, uh, neglected regions and people, extreme inequality, recently Oxfam uh, published uh, a report um, uh, that highlights that eight people have the same wealth as the poorest 50% of the world's population. So in this context, uh, that gives way to intolerance, extreme abuse, and as I referred this morning, to the movement uh, of polarization. And um, I think that we, we need to go back to the centrality of the human being and human values. Uh, values of solidarity, humanity, uh, also plurality. The local humanitarian leadership uh, approach, turning the humanitarian system on its head, and looking at it from a perspective of the local actors, I think it's, it helps us to, to think more in, in human beings affected by crisis and not so much in numbers, uh, as Tahir mentioned uh, uh, this morning. It seems logical, uh, knowing that communities are the first responders. We, uh, they know their context. Uh, I think we made this point. But um, the local humanitarian leadership agenda that uh, Oxfam, among others, have been pushing for is about shifting the power, transforming the humanitarian system by building a local capacity without neglecting the important role that the international actors have to play, but creating a space and, and support for local leadership. And leadership is about uh, driving change, is about uh, inspiring others as well. So in this context, are uh, religious actors uh, a problem or a solution? Uh, I think it is clear that they can be both, uh, but because of that uh, potential, it is important that we engage. Uh, it is important to reassess the role of religion in the context of development, but not so much uh, because religious actors have access to resources or can, can connect with communities. I think it is important for, people's, uh, for the role in people's well-being and resilience. And I think we have to start embracing what's, what is not measurable and what is invisible. Um, 
So, you know, as important as religion is for, uh, for communities, there has been a reluctance to engage in a way that is systematic, in a way that is informed, in a way that is uh, strategic. And for humanitarians and development actors, this is not just beneficial, it's crucial for the times we live in, and it's the right thing to do. So once again, uh, we need to engage, we need to collaborate. To engage, uh, we need to open up space, and religious literacy is about opening that space. And I think this event is, manifests our effort to move into that direction. Thank you. Uh, thank, uh, thank you very much. Uh, Alistair is next. Uh, thank you. So um, those of you that were here on, I would say, Friday evening, so it seems like it's been a long week, uh, two evenings ago, um, Last night. Last night. Last night. <laughs> last night. <laughs> Gosh, uh, those of you who were last night will know uh, that I shared a story at the start of my uh, brief presentation around an act of uh, religious illiteracy in Sudan, in, in, in Darfur, a few years ago. So I wanted to focus my, my remarks now, given we're focused on Sudan, on basically two things that I didn't understand at that time that I wish I had. I'm not sure I understand them now, but I think they would have equipped me significantly better to be an effective humanitarian in that context. Uh, and both of these uh, uh, things, uh, I think, reflect uh, on discussions we've had either earlier in this panel or indeed in the previous panel. Uh, so the first is the interaction of politics and economy with religion. Um, and uh, being an academic, uh, I've also followed Diane's prompt of looking at the readings that I'm sure you've all read fully and thoroughly as a context for this. So I want to link a little bit with that. So those of you who've read the Roger Dean paper uh, very much asserts that there are many bases of conflict in Sudan, as we've touched on, um, but religion isn't really one of them. That's basically his conclusion. And uh, I very much have drawn on the work of Francis Stewart of the uh, Oxford uh, Department of Development, International Development, who concludes that careful analysis of local conflict suggests that religious identity typically provides a basis for intolerance less on the basis of religious principle than as a mark of a political mobilization in contexts of marked economic inequality, which is again echoing what we've heard earlier. So it, it's not really religion, it's the way religion is used. And indeed, uh, delighted to say that the new uh, um, uh, Secretary General, former uh, UNHCR High Commissioner uh, Guterres, uh, said uh, at the 2012 uh, Dialogue on Faith and Protection, violence and persecution are also perpetrated in the name of religion. The truth is, that's my emphasis, that where religion is used to undermine the rights of people, this normally is not done by religious leaders, but by politicians who use religion for their purposes. Now, I'm 80% persuaded about this, but not 100%, frankly. I think it's a useful argument to have to say, oh, yes, you're attributing it all to religion. It's really much more complicated than that. But the complication does seem to me in that invented statistic of 20% of the variance of how has religion and religious sentiment been allowed to be co-opted by, uh, and thinking of Sudan and using the memorable words of Alex Duval, the retail politics of Sudan. How has religion been for sale in terms of its affiliation? How have those ideas and those sentiments been co-opted? And I think those of us that are religious or people of faith can't easily just get off the hook by saying, all oh, politicians have manipulated sentiment. We have responsibilities, or those members of, 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 of those communities have responsibilities to understand how their identities are manipulated. 
I don't think we know too well uh, those processes, and I think we need to more effectively document strategies of religious and interreligious dialogue and action, which I think has been emphasised well here, to combat this co-option. And next door, in the Central African Republic, I think there are some really interesting emerging examples where religious leaders have taken a prominent role quite explicitly uh, in addressing the way that religion has been used to ferment conflict and distancing themselves from it or working uh, for peace and reconciliation. So I think that's a really important area of study and I want to link it for Diane and for others and for your report writing to this notion of religious literacy. Religious literacy must mean, particularly given your definition, not only acknowledging that religion is tied up with political economy and politics, but somehow give us some tools for navigating that uh, and, and, and addressing it in contexts where those politics drive uh, humanitarian uh, divides and, and conflict. Uh, the second thing uh, that I wished I had known or I had had better insight into uh, when I was in Darfur and I was acting as a illiterate or religiously illiterate humanitarian was around the lived experience of humanitarian beneficiaries. Um, and I, I, I want to prefix that by... Uh, I've been slightly irritated, not too irritated, but slightly irritated this meeting. What often happens is that the religion that we focused on has quite often been the religion of organisations, of faith-based organisations. And that's important, in a way, but I'm frankly not so interested in it. I don't think it's the central topic. The religion uh, that I am interested in, and I think humanitarians should be interested in, as a primary rather than as a secondary goal, is the religion of beneficiaries and the role, uh, very much as, as Noel just hinted at, the role of that religiosity in their struggle and their experience uh, as beneficiaries or experiences at the centre of a humanitarian uh, crisis. Um, and I want to argue that that focus on the faith of beneficiaries, the religion of beneficiaries, is important both on the grounds of efficiency so the sense that if we're looking at resilience and we're looking at, at recovery, uh, then religious coping that provides a search for me, uh, supporting research for meaning, assisting emotional comfort or anxiety reduction, promoting a sense of social interconnectedness, providing a sense of communion with, with divine principles. And I'd like to, those are all quotes from a sort of a central understanding of of coping mechanisms. I'd link that to Tariq's search for neighbourhood. If 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 that's what religious communities do, that is efficient humanitarianism to connect with that. It's, it, it's not uh, just uh, window dressing, it's really quite important to the efficiency and the effectiveness of what we're trying to do. But also that we should engage with that lived experience and for many circumstances therefore the lived religious experience of beneficiaries because of a sense of integrity um, and, and going back to the person-centeredness or, or, or our understanding that the beneficiary is at the centre of the system. Uh, in looking at some work around psychosocial, we've gone back to the Article 1 and Article 18 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is frequently used about religion to say not to discriminate on, on the basis of religion, which is clearly important. But those articles are also there to protect the, the expression of religion, to, to, to acknowledge it as a key component of experience. The freedom, either alone or in community, with others and in public or private, to manifest their religion or belief in teaching, in practice, in worship and observance. That's our humanitarian principle reflected in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So religion isn't some tangential issue to that if we're seeking a human rights agenda and seeking to uh, look at humanity and its centrality it very much needs to address that 
If we address that, and this is a little bit of a quote from the book, but it, it, it helps a little bit, uh, I think we're drawn back to use Weber's term to an enchanted world. This is a world where spiritual forces interact with human choices, motivation outcomes, <laughs> concepts alien to the self-sufficient materialism envisioned by the buffered self of modernity. And, and the buffered self is a, a concept that Taylor uses to look at how secularism has had this understanding of how we can stand outside of ourselves, out, stand outside of the world, and have a sense of contingency, but still feel that we have a self. And he says it's a, it's a magic trick. It, it, it's an illusion that either we are completely in the flow and our illusion and our sense of control is illusory, or we have a, a self that somehow is separate from, from that. And that is the consequence of late modernity and, and a twisted Protestantism in, 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 in Taylor's eyes. If, if, we, if we see that that assumption that we can separate ourselves in that way, we are tangled up in a world, an enchanted world, to use Weber's phrase, which many at Columbia University, at Harvard University, we may be a little uncomfortable engaging with, but wanting to respect a world, and clearly in Sudan, where that world of religiosity is imminent. It's, it's there. It's key in determining decisions and allegiance and experience. So uh, the Halton paper that you quote has a, has a very powerful quote in it. I think it's powerful, although I think we can disempower it in our interpretation of it. And she quotes a Dinka elder who is asked about how the community survived through a period of conflict and displacement. And the, the elder says this, Our hope comes from God. He is the air that we breathe. He is the sand that we walk on. Without him, we would not have made it. But through him, we will have our future. Now, you can deconstruct that phrase in a million ways, and, and we could, and I could be a psychologist and say, and that just shows the importance of creating a sense of meaning and so forth. But that, it seems to be presumptive and arrogant of me to take out the cosmology of, of, of that and the structure of that in terms of that lived experience. And I'm going to suggest that religious narrative reflects theological reflection, local theological, contextual theological reflection on identity, suffering, Hope, dignity, obligation, transformation. That's the world, the local world, where this happens, where your exile is experienced, where your reconstruction of a future, where your reconstruction of neighbourhood or belonging happens. And therefore, uh, this encouragement for, uh, again, great to be in a divinity school, religious studies and theology will be on your agenda to ask you to help us humanitarians to find ways into that world that can help us to understand that experience. And that opportunity to enter that world is a way to decolonize our understanding of the destitute, the, deplaced, the displaced, and the oppressed. And I want to close just with, again, a little quote. Um, um, I'm not uh, up so much in my theologians, but I wanted to use so two ideas, uh, one of, of Manuel Vasquez, that one of the reasons that modernity has not succeeded in supplanting religion is faith capacity too. And this is what, and, and humanitarians aren't very good at doing these things. Link the realities that modernity dichotomized and that globalization destabilized, that you're both global and local, that tradition and modernity, the sacred and the profane, culture and society, the private and the public, that those dichotomies are what our framing encourages in good analytical traditions within Western uh, institutions of learning. 
but faith religious structures often deals with the hybridity of those notions to use a theological phrase that is important in terms of our understanding so in conclusion uh, the humanitarian practitioner faces two challenges first to engage the real faith of the people alongside whom they're working not the pure faith taught in the books and second, to validate the hybrid identities without suggesting pathology. The contextual production of religious reflection by people of faith is a fundamental characteristic of global religious expression. It needs to be engaged with if humanitarian agencies are to encounter religion in the terms that drives identity, belonging, and the trajectory of survival within local faith communities. Thank you. Thank you, Alistair. And uh, last but not least, Manal um, Omar. Great, thank you. Um, I, I love going last, and particularly being in a second panel after the Syria panel, because all I'm going to start doing is just giving some amens to what people have already said. And so let me start by emphasizing Fadi's point, which I think was really important. Is like I think it's a no-brainer. We work with religious leaders, but we also have to remember to hold them accountable. Um, and I think when we're looking at um, something that, as I had said, about really not forgetting the impact of women and looking at the indicators when it comes to women and particularly young girls, is, and I think particularly for an early detection warning sign. Um, and then, you know, Tahir, I think what you said is, is, you know, in the middle of all the terminology and at the heart of the alphabet soup, we really are talking about the guest and host relations when we're looking at the refugee crisis. Um, and finally, let me just, you know, duplicate um, uh, what's it called, Enwar's intro, and particularly the way he delivered it. I thought it was well done, so thank you. I do want to add one um, gratitude to my colleague Susie Hayward, because as a practitioner working 20 years, I've always seen patterns but never had the language to articulate it. And so what I'm witnessing today really symbolizes bringing able to bring the practitioners to the academic. So we develop that vocabulary, and then we're able to together capture lessons learned. Because without the um, introduction to this work that Susie brought to me in terms of particularly religion and peace building, I wouldn't have been able to articulate my lessons learned. And I think that's a really important thing that we're witnessing in this event today. So I thank all those who organized it. Um, I thought I would save two minutes, but apparently I didn't by just doing that. But I do want to say, I am a person who was born in conflict. You know, being a Palestinian origin, being a woman born in Islam, constantly negotiating between my religion and faith, and being raised in the South, it's something that from a very early age, conflict has been the norm. And as such, I think what um, um, Noel emphasized in terms of the binary is something that we've really been caught into, and particularly in this day and age. And I really appreciate um, Sudan and South Sudan is a case study because I think the complexity of it really drives home the point we're trying to make today about why looking at religion from so many different perspectives is important, but particularly the binary. I mean, as Sahir really clearly demonstrated, you know, we, this conflict for anyone who knows conflict and runs conflict assessments is driven by resources and it's driven by distribution. And the problem is, is that's really a very small group of people. Most people see Sudan and South Sudan as Muslim Christian more. And so when it's, you know, we miss the nuances, we also miss the opportunities to respond. And, you know, we, we fed into it because part of it is tied to our fundraising campaign. So sometimes we even feed into the binary way of looking. And when, you know, things started to go wrong, not only in Darfur, but in Port of Sudan and Kassala, I, our binary broke down in Sudan, right? Because we're saying it's a Muslim Christian war, 
but you know, Darfurians are Muslim and Port of Sudan and Kassala are Muslim. So then we had to shift and be like, okay, it's not just Muslim, it's ethnic. So now it's Arab versus um, African. And so we, you know, we feed oftentimes, and again, it's usually because we're trying to build support, but we often feed into this language. Now, I'm a huge believer, um, and it's why I did my degree in economics, I really do believe almost all conflict is rooted in resources. And you know, as a Palestinian, you cannot convince me that it's religion or it's ethnicity. It is land, it's water, it's occupation, and those are the issues at heart. And again, Sudan really delivers that point, but oftentimes it's not, you know, it's not really demonstrated. Um, but what I think is demonstrated well in this conflict is the both roles that um, religion played. I don't think we would have had the violence if we did not have the tone of religion that was used. Um, you know, the Quran and the Bible were both very frequently quoted to validate the atrocities that took place. But at the same time, we would not have had the peace negotiations if it wasn't for religious leaders who st stepped up. So we can see it very clearly as both a connector and a divider. But what I wanted to do, because I think everyone else really gave the background both in terms of religion but also in terms of the humanitarian and the political, I wanted to try and say what were the lessons learned that I pulled out of my experience when I was working on Sudan. And USIP does a lot of work um, currently on Sudan, but my personal experience dates back to 2006. I was actually um, with Women for Women International at the time. And what really came clear, um, and I was based in Rumbek, so I was based in the South. And as a Muslim Arab, everyone was really surprised that I was living in Rumbek, and it, it really opened up a lot of dialogue. But I think one of the things that we miss is by classifying the um, first civil war as a religious war, we really miss what, what, what would come next. So most people would talk about it as conflict between Muslim Arab North and the Christian South, and sometimes people would add the Christian African South, right? So that was kind of the dynamic. And I would argue that because of that, we weren't building an appetite for donors to invest in South Sudan as a transition and as institution building and as a nation building. Because the assumption was once we got you know, them disconnected from the Muslim Arab South, they would be united and be able to do their own work, which we know is not the case. Institution building is a whole, you know, obviously we know because of the current situation now, but even back then we knew not to be the case. So there's a real challenge when we do use religion as the driver of conflict because we're actually not dealing with preparedness for what's going to happen next. I think the other challenge is really looking at religion as a larger part of culture and identity. And I think Sahara already did, already did a good job in terms of there was a thirst for what is the Sudanese. I mean, it's the size of a continent. You know, Sudan, at one point when it was united, was large. It was impossible to expect that you would have one type of identity that you would be able to use across the board. And so people were consistently struggling trying to understand what would be the Sudanese identity. And I'll go into a little bit in terms of what are the recommendations, but that, I think, was one of the key challenges. I do want to also emphasize, and I'm a firm believer, that very rarely is it just internal. You know, uh, you know Sudan, and particularly um, the religious uh, component of Sudan, was driven by the funding and by the interests of regional and international players. So it's another dynamic that we have to watch. Because oftentimes when we treat national players like, like they just need to get along, and if we put them in a big sandbox, they'll figure it out, we're being naive about what's actually influencing. And so for the South, they were very much dependent on Christian missionaries to fund them and for the humanitarian aid. So they had to really you know, fuel their um, religious identity to be able to keep the interest of the global community and the international donors. And likewise, Khartoum needed the alliances of the Gulf and needed alliances, so both started to super emphasize their religious affiliations because they were pulling in alliances and support. It wasn't only religiously driven. 
And so that role, I think, is something that we often forget and don't emphasize enough. Now, by watching those dynamics, you can identify early detection warning signs. And if you remember, one of the big triggers that really pushed out um, the Civil War was when Sharia law was declared. And that, for us, should have been the ringing of a bell, because it wasn't just about discrimination against um, the Christians in the country when you introduced Sharia law. What you actually did was supersede the 1972 agreement, which also promised not only religious freedom, but social and political and economic freedom. So there was a real fear about what was going to happen towards distribution, but the trigger, again, was Sharia law. And so people were emphasizing on the religious and Islamic and the you know, protection of minorities dynamics, not realizing that 1972 settlement was now no longer in practice. And, and that was a big challenge, particularly for people in the South where distribution was a big issue. Now, we all keep saying that religion also plays an important role. And I do want to spend, since time is limited, a little bit emphasizing that was definitely the case both when Sudan was united and in the division. Um, as I, I, I mentioned, religion was used as a way to really speak out against injustices. It's a way to hold people accountable. And that was something that we saw in the positive light. Um, it helped mobilize, I mean, I already talked about the bad part of it, but it did help mobilize much needed humanitarian response and aid, and the primary deliverers, as in most conflicts, were religious organizations. Um, I, I cannot emphasize enough the role religious leaders played in the peace negotiations. There was not faith in third party or outsiders, but there was a faith in terms of those who were coming when the, the people, the religious leaders came in. Um, most notable in the negotiations were really the World, Church of, uh, the World Council of Churches, um, the All Africa Conference of Churches, and the Sudan Council of Churches. I mean, they played an instrumental role. And people were interviewed often recount, I don't know if for those who watch Sudan probably remember, like the opening opened with the Bible and the Quran. And oftentimes Sudanese would share how important that moment was for them, that they were able to see the negotiations open with a religious unity message, not because they had all grown up with the divide. So you know that I think was a very significant um, and then finally, just the role of the mediators pulling in new interpretations, pulling in scripture to counter all the negative messages that had been for so long was also quoted as one of the things that brought some confidence to the table. Now, keep in mind, I was there in 2006, so a lot of this was before um, the Grand accident or the Grand crash. So, you know, it was a moment of hope that I happened to witness. And when I look back, I do feel that we missed all the early warning signs because of an overemphasis on, as I've already described. I do want to just end with um, maybe one minute in terms of what are the actual recommendations? You know, what can we take away and try to introduce to the institutions and the organizations we're either affiliated with or work for? And the first and foremost on my mind is institutional capacity. And this isn't only for our organizations, but also for the governments that we work with. You know, governments often are afraid, and, and we heard this in the previous panel, and Sahar mentioned it as well, they're afraid to engage with the religious because it's also seen as a divider, it's very sensitive. Even here at home in the US, we're really struggling how do we have a conversation about religion within a government thing. So it's important that we're working with governments to allow them some extra tools on how to handle conversations with religion. 
And on, on an international level, I think each one of us has, who has a humanitarian background will tell you how exhausting it is to add another layer that we have to build on our expertise, right? So we have to be gender experts. We have to know how to engage youth. We have to look at you know, different non-state actors. And we're just adding layers without the institutional capacity or budgets. And I think it's very unfair to keep putting that on the individuals who respond. It has to be institutionally driven. And you know, to be specific, I think one of the things that institutions have to consider is there's often legal restrictions to how we handle um, religion, particularly in terms of funding and USAID and, and US government. Um, there's overwhelmingly a, what I guess is called religious literacy, but the, the way to actually train people who have no background on religion to engage in religion. Um, and also there's a lack of structure in terms of how to deal with religion, religion as one of the stakeholders. Um, and you know, my biggest concern is I've seen those who try to check a box will use identity as a form of training on religion. So you know, I love giving fatwas. I offer them out like left and right, but I'm not qualified for it. So you need to find experts. I, I do. <laughs> you need to find experts who have the training rather than relying on identity. I'm 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 consistently alarmed at how many people use that as the force. You know, they'll call in a Muslim to do Muslim sensitive training and it, it is not productive. It's not how it should be run. We should be really run on the things. Um, the other area in terms of what I think we need to do in terms of recommendation is as an automatic indicator, when we see religion is at the center, dig deep in history. You know, it, there is a huge historical component. And, and to give you an example, a lot of people already talked about the use of the Arab and the um, Muslim elite and how that played in forming national identity. But go a little bit even further. I mean, the reason why the Mahdi was using that as a force was to try and unite Sudan against the Ottomans, right? This is the time when they were trying to kick out the Ottomans. So you needed something to supersede Turkish Islam, so you used Arab Islam. So everything ends up being a tool, and we saw this in the South where Christianity was used to unite the different fractions against the North, but once you lose that North, it goes back under. So you know, going really back in history will actually give you the tools because you know, my experience is that history, you know, we always say history repeats itself, but it repeats itself to be healed. It is offering opportunities of healings as communities and nations. So once it repeats itself, it's calling out for us to pay attention and to heal it. So when you go back to history, it's not a matter of it's in inevitable that the pattern will repeat. It's that it will repeat until it's healed. And so that's something that I think understanding it from that lens allows it to be a positive. Um, two final points is one is I, I don't believe in civil war. So you know when it's particularly the same way, I don't believe that identity is a driver of conflict. I don't believe in civil war. There's always regional and international. So engaging them early and recognizing the moment you enter, the moment you talk about conflict, you are part of that conflict in one way or another. You're either passing on um, false information or you're advocating in some way. So once we begin to realize that we're actually part of it in some form or another once we get involved, then I think we can be more positive and you know, the do no harm principle can be honored. Um, and then finally, you know, I, I would be remiss from the institute that I work with if I didn't say the emphasis of peace as possible is essential. I think particularly now, Noel gave us the update in, in Sahara in terms of how bad the numbers are in South Sudan. Um, both USIP and the Holocaust Memorial has been saying we're edging on genocide. And if we don't believe in nonviolence, then it's very hard for us to convince people on the ground that that is actually an option. And my fear is that we're often backtracking and role modeling violence versus the, the, the other. Thank you. Um, thank you, Manal. We have uh, about 15 or 20 minutes for questions.
Um, again, if you have a question, raise your hand. We'll find Mike. We'll find you and uh, give us your name and your question. Hi, my name is Nadia. Uh, thank you. Are you are you leaving? Are you, is the question for me? I'll wait. It and is. Then I have to it's, leave. It's sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I have a plane to catch. But no, right, it's a very small question for you. You mentioned religion as a stakeholder. Could you elaborate a little bit on that? What do you mean? Um, well, so I think it was um, I can't remember who was saying in terms of it's not only just the religious leaders, but basically interviewing people who use faith as a motive. So talking to religious leaders as well. But you know, my experience, particularly working with women, is oftentimes um, the way women practice is different than the way institutions practice. And so if we're only interviewing people who are like the religious leaders and the formal and not going for the informal, we miss a big part of the religious dynamic. And so that's what I try to advocate for. It's not only those who speak on behalf of religion, but it's also those who practice and who are of faith. Because, you know, for example, for women's issues, quoting the Quran is going to be far more, resonate far more than quoting 1325. But I wouldn't know that if I hadn't done all the interviews with women knowing where their moral authority sits. So that's what I mean by including them in the power, um, power analysis or a stakeholder analysis. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Can I be on something? Um, actually, I, I wanted to make a comment to Alistair's point about um, um, religion of beneficiaries versus religion of uh, institutions, kind of in another, another term, uh, a building on that, I think that, uh, that faith actually provides agency. And so it turns beneficiaries into agents of change. So that's how I think the, the approach that we have to look at it. How, you know, they're not beneficiaries anymore. How faith is actually helping beneficiaries transcend themselves. And just to pick up on that, um, yeah, I think that's what I'm trying to say, is that the, the lens needs to focus there. And I'm not dismissing our understanding of the value added or the reach of faith-based institutions and organisations, but I, I think once we see it that way, it's a secondary issue. It's basically saying, how do we enhance agency? That's not a religious question. I think it involves religion. But, um, and, and therefore, secondarily, we look at the actors that are well-equipped to foster agency yeah. and those that tend to disrupt it. Uh, and that then brings in an understanding of agency capacities and, and strategies. So it's not that it's unimportant, but I think it just helps us to ensure that we're putting this on the agenda, not because we're uh, advocates for a particular form of humanitarian assistance or a particular group of actors, it's because we're advocates for beneficiaries or, or, or populations at risk in humanitarian crises, and we see this is a, an understanding of their experience that is helpful for us to be helpful to them. Other questions? Yes, right here. This is a question for Alistair. Uh, you, you talked about religious narratives of displacement as being contextual theological reflections. I was, I was really interested by that. And just thinking, given that the displaced are often, uh, I wouldn't say voiceless, but not given the platform to be heard, how can we kind of get that sort of theological reflection to be heard by those who kind of have the keys 
for or the authority around theological reflection. Um, I'm thinking of religious leaders, right? So how can we bring those conversations together? So fortunately, I have a quite a concrete answer to that because at the moment, uh, I have two experiences. One is that, uh, and I'm sure others on the panel will recognise it, as a humanitarian, if you approach a, and I've used, I've fallen into calling beneficiaries, but we approach someone and we ask them what their needs are, we get a laundry list which often includes employment and shelter, and, and not that that's unimportant, but I think we need to acknowledge that that script, that that discourse is partly driven by the dynamics of the situation. It's not, it's, and, and uh, it's not to dismiss those needs, but it's, it is about creating a different sort of relationship, a different sort of space for people to speak. So actually working with Elena uh, Fidian Kismir, who as they, is not able to be with us, uh, we've been delightfully funded, and I, I have to uh, be even more delighted to say this four-year project, because often you get four-year projects, to look at the experience of displaced Syrian communities and their host communities, and I acknowledge what you were saying, the problematization of that simple uh, binary, uh, but to look at their experiences, but in particular to look uh, with, uh, it sounds very um, esoteric, but I hope you see where this is going, actually to recruit creative writing professor from uh, a University of East Anglia, great uh, creative writing school, to work with those communities to write a literature of their experience. And we have a theologian on the team to identify when there is the opportunity to tell stories. And it's not your testimony to tell us your experience. The whole idea is to put people into a place of imagination where clearly they will reflect their experience. But rather than demand that it follows a certain form, what will Syrian women who themselves hosted Iraqis previously and now are recipients of, of aid from others, what will they write about given the space to have something with moral authority and imagination? And I'm assuming it will be reference and it will be a religious narrative, but it may not be. I, I really don't know, but it's that, that's why I deliberately saw that subheading as the lived experience. I suspect it will often be the lived religious experience. I expect religion to be prominent in it, but it's not the religion that really interests me. It's the what, what is the frame that's used. And I just simply think that at the moment we know that if we understand and inhabit that frame, it will be useful for donors and for, for uh, humanitarian agencies to see whether we are responding to those sorts of needs, that sort of, is that the sort of humanity we were thought we were protecting? See, it's delightful to have this word humanitarianism in our goal. So we have to have a notion of what's the person? What's the nature, the character of the person that we're trying to support? And, and if that narrative helps us do that, and then I think also you're right to then with, I, I'm, like you, I think I'm skeptical of religious leaders representing that religious experience. And as I hinted at in the quote, it may not be orthodox local theology that people come up with in terms of their sense-making and, and, and so forth. So I think it's powerful fuel for that discussion. Rob. Hi, Rob Roderick again. Um, I think my question is most directly for Sahar, but I'd encourage um, anyone to, to jump in if, if you've got something. Um, I'm a little worried maybe that I'm asking um, something that's, that's uh, beyond, you know, maybe your, what I, where I should be asking. So, so if, if it's something that you're, you just don't know about, then, then okay. But I'm, I'm also really interested in, in this um, line of thought um, that, that Alistair has just mentioned again here just now, uh, as well as yesterday, about um, 
theology actually being a source of local contextual knowledge, that there's certain forms of knowledge in, in a theological articulation of what someone experiences or thinks about the situation, right, that, that we should know about. So I'm really wondering if you've heard or um, directly or, or indirectly sort of theological statements about the um, various conflicts in, in Sudan that, that you were mentioning. Um, if there, there are ways in which people have articulated through a, through a theological lens, through a religious lens, um, that, that it are informing how they view this, this conflict, you know, so that, that would be different than saying, okay, it's a religious basis to it or not, but just saying how they, through their religious lens on everything, are saying either here's a potential for hope for resolution, um, here's a potential source of conflict or, or whatever it is, but um, I guess just, just turning that around from, from the academic perspective to saying, have you, have you actually heard any of those uh, types of comments that might inform us uh, about those kind of local knowledges? Okay, well, I think um, actually um, uh, I can just give examples, you know. Uh, I mean, like uh, being working in, 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 in uh, like a humanitarian practitioner uh, going to Darfur, where you find thousands of, of women that they have lost everything. Uh, uh, their village is, 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 is completely burned and they are displaced and, and uh, you know, members of their families uh, died. But you see them still smiling. And that actually kind of is really, uh, it inspired me, you know, at, you know, I like being a Sudanese and I know that um, like, uh, and, and also Muslim, I know that how, how religion actually teach uh, the, the people uh, the kind of, of being resilient to, to accept disaster, you know, because the belief of it is something coming from God for a reason. So I think that is in a way, it, 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 I feel it, is, it gives people hope and, 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 and strength to face the, the, the situation, which, which I think we as, as a humanitarian organization, we tend to neglect that because we are always looking to how we can do uh, needs assessment, uh, looking at the needs of the people, what kind of uh, assistance we are going to provide and neglecting this, which is actually, it, it is a huge, you know, a, a huge amount of peaceful uh, uh, resilience that the people themselves feel, uh, live with it which I think it is, um, uh, it is more valuable than, uh, than any kind of assistance that we tend to think it is, it is very important and we have to do it on time and deliver it with certain uh, standards and quality. And so, yeah, so I think it is, it is, uh, it is something that we, uh, we experienced every day, so. I don't know if I answer your point or, yeah. yeah. Could, could I just briefly comment on that, that I, I agree, Sahara, but it's just interesting in me that as you say that, there's still a bit of me that revolts against that, of how, you know, how awful that a woman feels she's resilient, and, and, and it's my Western secular lens to say, you know, that, that we don't want her to be reliant on that, we need to support her, and I just, so I, I think, Part of what is to make those debates that we have in our own minds, that, and I think it's very prominent when views that you describe are seen, are dismissed as, I think that's the right word, as fatalism. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and again, to a Western lens, this idea of acceptance of suffering is deeply uncomfortable because of our own theologies as, as being having agency and power and so in situations. So I, I don't think there's an easy answer there, but I think it's exactly in that dialectic of working out mm -hmm. how we can support that woman and, and give have a sense of that she has choices while still respecting her groundedness and her resilience in the face of that suffering. So I think to dismiss her as... You know, uh, it's fatalism and we need to do it would be terrible. But equally, there's a bit of me still that feels we don't want to just, OK, she's smiling, she's fine. We don't need to respond to her. And yeah. it's that dialectic yeah. between our understandings yeah. that's really, I think, the key yeah. of what we're trying to but do. I think you're assuming yeah. Yeah. that accepting means a paralyzing mm -hmm. uh, experience. It might not be the case. It is a hope, actually. It might be actually a, a force of action. I, and I think the discussion is about how we can open up these frames so mm -hmm. we can start learning and having other types of conversations and not uh, reaching beneficiaries with a list of questions and ask, you know, we are close to telling them, okay, I have a list of questions, you tell me you need water and food because I'm not a medical organization, right? So how can we break those frames and start having other conversations that, that open up the space for other kind of interactions? Uh, I'm Elia Judi from Oxfam. I have a question. As we know, Al-Bashir and some other leaders in the Arab countries depend on the religious as a basis to, for their domination. In the context of Sudan, are there independent religious groups that are you able to work with to deliver the aid or to help the local communities? How is this, is, I mean, playing in the context of Sudan? Yeah. Okay, actually, first I think uh, uh, it is important that we understand that, um, uh, I mean, the ruling party, uh, NCP, is um, uh, what we call it, it is um, the political Islam. So it's not uh, uh, what Islam is, is teaching. So this is, this is very important. Uh, I think in the context of Sudan that we try to uh, explain a little bit with the complexity and you know, and the uh, manipulation that had happened from different uh, parties, it was very hard um, to find, uh, in the particular, uh, a faith-based local organization. Because most of the time, the formal local uh, leaders or faith-based organization, they are they have affiliation, either a political affiliation or uh, asserting religious uh, affiliation. And, and I think that the complexity of the situation made it a little bit difficult for certain uh, humanitarian organizations to start to engage uh, because of the issue of the uh, neutrality. However, within that context, yes, there are a um, number of uh, local actors uh, that they, uh, they were uh, very um, neutral. And some of them, they have uh, a face-based uh, or uh, face-influenced uh, organizations, and and they have a kind of really uh, tried to uh, really provide um, support and assistance to the people in need, regardless of 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 their uh, race or uh, religion or. Uh, but for 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 the international organization, actually, it was um, a debate, and 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 it was not easy. Uh, for them to decide with whom to in to engage, uh, but um, by saying this, I'm not saying it is impossible. 
there is still an opportunities, uh, but we need also to study uh, those different actors before uh, we engage with them. I, um, we're running out of time, but I, I want to take my prerogative as the, the moderator here to just take up from a religious studies perspective, perhaps this, this notion of, oh, a particular conflict is not a religious conflict. Because it seems to me uh, we, and I think this is what you were hinting at, Alistair, we can't really have it both ways where we say, you know, religion is deeply embedded in culture and economy and politics, and they're sort of inextricable, and then all of a sudden we can have a situation where we want to protect religion and its purity, and we can say, oh, that's actually economic and political and social, but it's not religious. And I, I think so, so for me, when I hear, and when I read that article, that sentence jumped out at me, and I cringed when I read, read that line about how, oh, this is not a religious conflict. And I think you can read that sentence in a lot of ways. I mean, one way is, this is not only a religious conflict. In other words, you might think this is a conflict between Christians and Muslims, but it, it is not only that. You can read it that way. You can also read it in, this is not largely a religious conflict. In other words, it's largely about land, or it's largely about economy, or it's largely about, and it's only partly about religious. You can read it that way, or you can read that it, it is, um, you know. Or not in its origin. Or not, right. So you can read it in many, right, in many different ways, but the place where I get nervous as a religious studies person is when that, that sentence is used to insulate religious actors from any responsibility um, in the conflict. And I think you offered another reading, which I, I would argue is even too nice to religion, <laughs> which is that, well, religion can get co-opted by these non-religious actors, um, and so the religious people have a responsibility to not let their religion get co-opted. But, and I think that's another reading. Um, but yet another is, you know, it doesn't really take a lot of co-opting to get most every religion in the world to do all sorts of horrible things. You know, I mean, there's plenty of resources in, in almost every religion in the world to go out and kill people. Um, it's not, you don't have to be a kind of whiz-bang weird interpreter of things in order to do that. You can just point to a, a few passages in, in, in scripture in most the cases of most religions. So um, I would just make a plea to um, not letting my subject of study, which is religion, kind of off the hook too easily. I understand why there are strategic or political um, or practical reasons inside institutions to do this. Um, but if we're talking about the truth or something, you know, like what is actually driving uh, conflicts in the world, I think if we want to argue, as I want to, that religion is a really, really powerful force in world history and in the contemporary world, then we need to acknowledge that it's probably a force on, on both sides of most of these questions. And I've heard a lot of that today um, and last night, and I appreciate that. But um, I guess this is just a challenge to, um, to uh, folks who want to, who are tempted at least to insulate religion, religious institutions or actors or ideas or scriptures or, or, um, or leaders from uh, responsibility in these conflicts to uh, you know, perhaps uh, question that. So. I don't know if any of you want to respond. We have a couple minutes left. I think the question is, what are the, the conditions in which or by which uh, religion is manipulated, including by religious actors, uh, for political, economic, or other reasons? 
I think that's, that's where we have to yeah. put the... Uh, yeah, and we know from history that uh, those conditions are much riper when the economies are really bad or when yeah. there's wartime or when there's... Yeah. yeah. Okay, um, thank you all uh, for um, uh, coming for this panel and thank you all uh, to the panelists as well. Um, Manal had to run out. Um, I should have said that right away. She wasn't mad at anything anyone said. She, <laughs> she, had, a, she had an airplane to catch. But um, uh, again, thank you to uh, thank you to the panelists, and we'll reconvene in 15 minutes. <laughs>